was wondering how my voice might sound after all of the loud talking during the Sunday school hour. If it sounds a little strained and you're wondering why, it's because I was talking a lot during the Sunday school hour. And that room was not really conducive to using your inside voice. So uh, we all may be feeling that a little bit, but here, here we are. Um, and I hope that you are feeling the hum, not just of the excitement and the energy in the room as we looked and learned about ministries that we can be involved in, but also you're prayerfully considering where it is God might be calling you to engage, not just so that you might serve, but through serving you might experience more meaning and more purpose and more satisfaction in life. That's one of the reasons why we want to give people opportunities to serve because of the way that connects us to God's purpose in the world and also in our lives. So uh, hope that you were a part of that. If not, you can check that out later. Hope you'll join us for lunch after the service. Uh, If you're a William Jewell student or a college student of any kind and you think that it's cost prohibitive, just show them your college ID and we'll make sure you don't have to pay for that. Somebody will pick it up for you. Greg Duncan's smiling because he would like to pick that up for you right now. I think, yeah, somebody will, right? Somebody will, your father-in-law. Yeah, we'll we'll figure that out. And uh, also, if you want to know more about what's going on, some of the ministry uh, things that we've been working on since the Imagine Retreat and those kinds of things, that's found in the 2BC Connect. That's not an invitation for you to read that now. But that is an invitation for, I, almost, I put it down, I thought maybe I shouldn't say this. It, it's, it's not an invitation for you to read it now, but it is an invitation for you to take it and read it at home. If you're curious about some of the things that we've been engaged in, folks have said, you know, I hear about one or two things, but w- what about the other things that were named at that retreat? And you'll see a pretty good synopsis as well as some other things in that newest fall edition of our 2BC Connect. So here's what I'm going to have you do as we start and as we end this sermon today. This is a little thought experiment that I've actually led us in before a long time ago, and I think it's helpful and it's clarifying. You can take out a piece of paper or on your worship guide, there is a place uh, in the sermon space, sermon reflections for five blanks. You'll need something to write with. And if you think that you don't want to do this or you don't want to take time to find something to write with, I I promise you that you do. You'll miss out on something if you don't do this, and it's not going to be hard work. So take that or another piece of paper. If you take another piece of paper, just create five blanks there. And I'm going to give you some guidance on what to do with those blanks. And I think it is a gospel experiment. First thing I want you to do with that first blank is I want you to leave it blank. Don't touch it. Don't write anything in that first blank. Uh, Just leave that empty. For the second blank, what I'd like for you to do is let your mind move outside of this building and begin to move around the world. And I would like for you to name in your mind a group of people that really disturb you. Someone that gets under your skin, a group of people that really gets under your skin, a a tribe or a niche or, or some party or something like that, they really get under your skin, they make your hair stand on end, not because they are annoying, or perhaps because they are annoying, but maybe also because they're terrifying to you. When you think about this group, you can't help but feel some measure of disgust. Now write that in that second blank, okay? We're going to come back to this later at the end, so write it in the second blank. 
In the third blank, I'd like for you to think around the world, around our nation, around even this community for someone or some group in need. This person or group has suffered at the hands of injustice. They are being wronged, and you'd like for someone to do something about it. Does that kind of grab you? Someone that's suffering from injustice, someone that's being wronged, and you have this sense of somebody ought to do something about this. Write that in the third blank. In the fourth blank, I'd like for you to think closer to home. This is where it can even get more uncomfortable. I promise, just because something is uncomfortable, it doesn't mean it's political, but uh, it may be uncomfortable. In the fourth blank, I'd like for you to think close to home, and I'd like for you to think of an individual Someone you know who is struggling. Someone who needs a helping hand. Someone who your heart hurts for or you think your heart should hurt for. Maybe you really, if you're honest with yourself, you don't care that much, but you think, I should care about this. And I'd like for you to put that person's name in that blank. And then finally, I'd like for you to think again close to home about someone who has hurt you. Again, you need to write this down because we're not going to come back to it again until the end of the sermon and you'll forget the prompts. Think close to home for someone who has hurt you, someone you struggle with, or someone who struggles with you. Someone you struggle with or someone who struggles with you and write that name in the fifth blank. And after you've done that, you can put that aside. We'll pick it up at the end of the sermon. We're going to come back to it, but first we need to look again at these vitally important words, these challenging instructions that Paul offers for us in Romans chapter 13. Listen to what he says. Let no debt remain outstanding among you except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now, if you were listening to that, that should have in some way assaulted your American sensibilities because he talks about debt and we live in a culture of debt. At this moment, the national debt for the United States stands at just around $33 trillion dollars. Total U.S. household debt, which includes credit card debt, student loans, mortgage, and things like that, currently stands at about $17.1 trillion. We are in an astronomical amount of debt. And one way or another, we all have a piece of it. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we like it. We, we, we like it because debt is the only way most of us live the lives that we live. Our ability to go into debt affords us the opportunity to have nicer homes, perhaps even to live in a home instead of a hut like some people in the world, to have a car instead of just a bicycle or a moped, or sometimes to have a car and a boat moped and a bicycle and a boat and all kinds of other things. Our essential possessions... The things we think we need to absolutely live in this world are things that most people in our world could only dream of possessing. Things they could never imagine owning. Because we live in a very different economic culture than most of the world. We live in a culture that is swimming in debt. And for the most part, 
we like it, right? I mean, don't pretend like you don't. For the most part, we like it. We like it. It's a tool for the American dream, and we've grown quite comfortable with it, wouldn't you say? But the Christian community that Paul was writing to in Rome wouldn't have been comfortable with debt, not in the way that we are. They tried to avoid it, in fact, at at, at all possible. Sometimes debt was necessary, such as if famine were to strike, a farmer uh, might need to borrow money to make it through the year, but this wasn't an arrangement that anyone entered into lightly. Because once they entered into debt, it wasn't easy to get out of debt. And if for some reason they weren't able to make the payments, there would be no chapter 11, There would be no bankruptcy. There would be no government bailout. No, if someone were to default on a creditor under Roman law, there were two options for collecting payment. One, the debtor or a member of their family could become an indentured servant, a slave, and they could work until the debt was paid off, which almost, usually almost never happened. Or two, the debtor could be put in prison where they could get a lot of work done. No, they continue to be in debt. For most people who found themselves in this kind of situation, they never found their way out of it. And they were quite familiar with people like this in this Roman community. So staying out of debt, as Paul said, at all cost was worth practicing. That was clear for them. Though for us... It's not quite so clear. And to be fair, the Bible itself offers uh, allowance for some non-debilitating debt, if you're worried about that. In our society, even complete abstinence from debt of any kind isn't always necessarily the wisest move. Debt can be taken on here in intelligent and wise and thoughtful and intelligent and responsible ways and can make better sense sometimes than not taking on any debt at all. I think we would mostly agree with that. So, in a sense, as people of faith, we wrestle with this. We wrestle with this as individuals. We wrestle with this as families. And we even wrestle with this as a church, sometimes taking out loans for the sake of our families and God's forward call in ministry for Christ's sake. And we take these on when we do responsibly and we finish them off aggressively as we've done with our Leonard and Franklin Street properties, as we're doing with our current chapel renovation loan. We do that aggressively. And we do this because we know that sometimes using our talents per the parable means we have to measure out some risk. It's not always one way or another in our culture. But in theirs, it was. They knew in a way that was much more certain than we know it that debt was something that could reshape the nature of your life in negative ways forever. Indentured servitude, slavery, imprisonment. These were some of the options. If you were going into debt and you were these people, it was bad. There was no good debt. They weren't trying to build up their credit score. And the Christian community in Rome wouldn't have needed a financial peace course to get a handle on this, which is why I'm sure that these Romans must have felt assaulted by Paul by the assertion that they were all insurmountably and overwhelmingly in debt. See, this is what Paul's telling them. Now, I think 
A modern illustration for us as we try to wrap our brains around this is connected to one of our 2BC ministries, actually, that you saw in there, our second hope payday lending alternative. And we do this, if you're interested about it, you can talk to Charlie Hughes, you can talk to Les Wyrick, and they'll give you some more information about this. And I hesitate to use these these kinds of things in positive ways, so I'm going to name it in kind of both a way that we might struggle with, a way that might create the need for the ministry, and also in a way that we might read it in a gospel sense in, in reference to this text. So with that in mind, I'll talk about it from both sides both a troublesome institution and as a metaphor for one account you and I could never pay off because, as the sermon title said, we're in debt. Bad news first. Payday loans often enslave people and they put them in places where it's almost impossible for them to ever succeed. This is not like borrowing from banks where there's you know, some good things in, in space to keep responsible loans happening and those kinds of things. No, the effective interest on paying on these 14-day loans can often add up to about 500% or more. In fact, as I was looking at this this week, uh, I think, I could be wrong about this, someone will correct me if I am, that Missouri has some of the least restrictions on these kinds of loans. So it's, it, it really can put people in a cycle of debt and poverty. It can result in a kind of debt slavery that keeps people insurmountably poor, which is why we have this payday lending alternative, Second Hope. It's good work. Now, metaphors aside... We're involved in things like this because we believe that Jesus has a special interest in how we treat the poor, and we believe that preying on the poor in our society is something that is upsetting to Jesus, who is consistently concerned in his life with how the institutions in his society preyed upon the poor and the oppressed. The gospel and the teachings of Jesus are often comforting for the afflicted and afflicting for the comfortable, right? A lot of us are pretty comfortable. So when we deal with things like this, it may unsettle us, things that we're working on in the public square, but that's just our sense of gospel call in that that regard. Martin Luther King Jr. once said about these kinds of things that the one who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as the one who helps to perpetrate it. The one who accepts evil without protesting against it is cooperating with it. And this is the kind of thing that we always want to keep in front of us in so many areas so that we're always wrestling with the ways we might appropriately leverage our gifts and our influence for Christ's sake, and for all those who Jesus loves. Now, that was a a significant gospel side note. Here's the gospel center note. Brings us back to the point of Paul's words here. And that is this, and this is the connection. We are all, and by we I mean each and every single one of us, are all in a kind of insurmountable, ever-compiling, unretirable, deserving much more than 500% interest kind of debt. But it's, it's good. It's very good. In short, Paul says in his letter that while we're all designed to live with God in glory, we have all fallen short of the glory of God by our sin. God created us to be set apart and holy, 
But our tendency to choose a life that is less than God's dream for us has caused us all to continually borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow against the holiness of God in this cycle of sin that seems destined only to earn us an everlasting indebtedness to sin. And quite, quite reasonably, that cycle should be all of our defining story. But the gospel says that God loves us too much to leave us in that cycle. That God has lovingly, sacrificially chose to engage and change the story. That as Paul says, at the right time while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And that means us. That means all of us. We have all, as Paul said, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we have all been freely justified by the grace that comes through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all, the hymn writer says. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is a huge part of the gospel. This is a huge part of a way that Paul helps us get our understanding into the gospel. Jesus saw the debt. Jesus saw the chasm it was creating between us and the God who loves us. He saw that like a payday loan, it had already spiraled seemingly out of control. And in response to that, and out of God's great love for us, God decided to do something unprecedented and often unnoticed. God transformed the debt, and then God transferred the debt. God transformed the debt, and then God transferred the debt. The good news of the gospel is that somehow on the cross of Jesus, Jesus somehow transformed our sin debt into a love debt, and then if you follow Paul's line of reasoning here, it seems that Jesus then transferred the holding of that debt from himself to others. Now this is really interesting. We cannot earn our salvation. We know that. We cannot do anything to purchase what Jesus has already purchased for us with his love, but Paul suggests that we do remain indebted to his love and we ought to continue making payments, not directly to God, but to God through others. Do you remember what he said? The whole law is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself, and if you do this, Paul says, you have, quote, fulfilled the law. There is this sense in Scripture that when we are loving our neighbors in the way that God has loved us, we are actually loving God through our neighbors. Forgive us our debts, Jesus taught us to pray, as we forgive our debtors in the same way. It's kind of a scary ask. There is a connection. There's a connection, a deep abiding connection between our love for God and our love for neighbor. And there is this sense that if we want to respond lovingly to Jesus in the light of the debt that he has paid for us, then we do it by loving our neighbors in the way God loves us. What does that look like? 
walking the second mile, turning the other cheek, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, dying sacrificially to lift others up by using our gifts to serve others, which is one of the many reasons why we put so many service opportunities in front of you at this church and in our ministry fair this morning. It seems, at least in this letter, that we make the largest payments toward the principle of our debts as we offer acts of love, especially acts of love that cause us to dig the deepest. Acts of love that cause us to be the most uncomfortable. One of the most striking examples I've seen of this is in a story I've never quite been able to shake that happened in Iraq several years ago. I found out about it through following a ministry called the Preemptive Love Coalition, who wrote this on their partner update. At the time, Christians in Iraq were being marked for extermination, and after Islamic militants began marking, afterward, Islamic militants began marking the homes of Christians in red paint with the Arabic letter in for Nazarene for extermination. Muslims and minorities across Iraq immediately sensed the gravity of the situation and began to proclaim in every way that they could, if one group is marked, we are all marked. If we stand by in silence today while others are marked for extinction, we know that our time will come and there will then be no one left to stand for us. In response to this, Muslims across Iraq joined together in protest, prayer, and vital photographs saying, we are all Iraqi. We are all Christians. With Christians and others being marked and driven out from their homes, a Muslim movement that says we are all Christian is subversive in that part of the world in the most daring of ways. We know this, right? It taunted the Islamic State and said to their suffering neighbors, doctrine aside, we see your humanity. You should not be marked for extermination. If they've marked you, then we will mark ourselves. If they come for you, they can come for us as well. If they come for you, they can come for us. Now, I wonder how many of us in this room right now would be willing to respond to the outstanding debt of love that we owe to Jesus by standing with others in the way that those peace-loving Muslims stood with our persecuted Christian sisters and brothers in Iraq. What do you think? In a situation like that, death, this is what you pay for this. Death Torture, displacement, destruction is an imminent threat for anyone who stands against that kind of evil and oppression. And yet, and yet in the face of it, these Muslims said, doctrines and ideals aside, you cannot do this. If one is marked, we are all marked. 
For today we are all Iraqi. For today we are all Christians because today and every day we are all human. And aren't we? Human beings? All sisters and brothers created in the image of God? Aren't we? Here's where I want you to take that piece of paper back out. And in that top blank that should have remained blank, I'd like for you to fill, in, fill it in with the words, we are all. We are all. Today we are all Iraqi. Today we are all Christians. Today we are all what? Victims of economic oppression. Victims of racism, victims of prejudice. Today we are all being bullied. Today we are all what? What? You've already answered that question. You've written your answer in those four blanks below that phrase, and so you have also written the beginning of your prayer. And this is what I want us to do. In the next few moments, as the music plays before we sing our hymn of response, I'd like for you to speak those sentences prayerfully that you've written on your paper. And then I would like for you to do this. As you speak them over and over and over again, I'd like for you to ask God what God might want you to hear through the message of those sentences. Today, we are all what? What is God trying to tell you today? Think about that prayerfully now as we continue to worship.